morning, Stephen. Well, hello. There it is. Hey, how Yay. are you? Oh, God. How are you two? Good. Good to see really you. Really good. You too. Garrett, I have not seen you in holy balls. <laughs> Probably. 14 years? Probably since 09 or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's, been, it yeah. it's been a minute. Wow. Thanks for joining us today, by oh, the way. This no, is great. I, I appreciate it. We're really excited to talk to you. Well, let's get rolling then. Uh, Jim, you want to do the countdown? Sure. Great. Uh, okay, so here we go. Three, two, one. Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Stephen Charles Marzoff. Uh, hi, Stephen. Hi, Jim. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Stephen is a professional actor and is the head of the undergraduate performance at the University of Arkansas. He has taught acting classes nationwide and acting Shakespeare's folio across the country with professional companies as well as numerous universities. Um, some of his acting credits uh, include performances at the Old Globe Theater, the La Jolla Playhouse, Milwaukee Rep, Chicago Shakes, Theater Squared, Trike Theater, Arkansas Shakes, where he is the artistic associate, Riverside Theater, Notre Dame Summer Shake, Steppenwolf, and at Steppenwolf, he was part of the original production of August Osage County, which is pretty amazing. Um, and he holds an MFA in acting from the Old Globe Theater, University of San Diego, PATP. Welcome, Stephen. Uh, and currently, you are in rehearsals, or you've just finished playing Prospero? Yes, we, we just finished our opening weekend. How's it going? Awesome. Uh, it was a 15 day rehearsal process, which was insane. Wow. Um, but, uh, but it's been great. It's a really beautiful play. I had worked on it once before, God, when I was 24. Um, and I just, I didn't, I, I didn't understand the play at that time. So coming back to it, it's been a, a real joy. Do you think it's an, like, you know, I, I would say like Romeo and Juliet is like a teenage play. Um, do you think that uh, The Tempest is a middle-aged, if not retiree play? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know what's interesting about it, though, is, you know, you have the whole Prospero story, which actually, you know, he's usually played by somebody in his 60s or 70s. But if you look at the timeline, Miranda is 15, and he says to Ferdinand, I've given you a third of my own life. So that means... He's three times her age, so he'd be 45, 50 max. But usually it's played by, you know, someone who's 60, 70 years old. So um, definitely uh, middle-aged. But then you have the love story, which is very Romeo and Juliet with Ferdinand and Miranda. And then you have the great clown characters in it. So it, it's such a, a full play. I feel like it really does a good job of, of the spectrum of Shakespeare's work. You know, you take a play like Lear, which is definitely someone who is creeping towards the end of their life versus R&J. And I feel like The Tempest has a mixture of all of that in it, which I think makes it a really, really interesting uh, play to work on. I actually heard something from Trevor Nunn where he said that it was the only play Shakespeare wrote that was fully his. Yeah. What, what did Trevor Nunn mean by that? All of his plays he has, and there is a tiny bit of source material for The Tempest, but that Shakespeare had taken the stories, every other play of his, he had taken some sort of a structure of a story and either built on it, deconstructed it, whatever. But The Tempest is fully his own creation. It's the only play that he did fully on his own. 
as far as just from his imagination. Stephen, you find yourself in Arkansas and you're not a native Arkansan. How did you make your way down to Arkansas? I was after grad school, which is where I met Garrett. And Garrett and I spent over five months together. <laughs> That's right. Full disclosure, we worked together at the Old Globe in San Diego, California. Truly. So after grad school, I went back to Chicago, which is where I had spent a lot of time pre-grad school. And a company in Fayetteville, Arkansas called Theater Squared was doing auditions for a play called The Fall of the House. And this was in like 2011. And the show was going to perform in 2012. So I auditioned and got cast. Knew where Arkansas was, had never been there. Never thought in a million years I would have stayed, but did the show, fell in love with the area, which it's an amazing area in Northwest Arkansas. And I've been here ever since. So I, I came here in 2012, March of 2012, and here I am 11 years later, still here. Yeah. Fayetteville is very beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, for those that, that have never been, it's um, a great combination of, aesthetically it's gorgeous with all of the, the mountains, and you know walmart and tyson and jb hunter here so the arts actually are flourishing in this area the amount of money that is put into it you know there's a, a great museum the walmart museum uh, is up in bentonville which is about 25 minutes north of fayetteville you have two professional theaters here that are thriving uh visual arts the walmart amp there's tons of music venues it's a pretty incredible place artistically you had um, new people from around the country that were just coming in at that time. Myself, Troy and Johnny, um, you know, Paul Savas came a few years later. So all of these people that had really great artistic roots throughout the country just kept coming here. And in a lot of ways, I think Theater Squared was sort of, at least artistically in this area, was one of the big reasons why. They sort of blew up in like 2011, 2012, right when I first came here. And now they're in a multi-million dollar, gorgeous facility um, in downtown Fayetteville. That's just, uh, the architecture is a mix of East Coast meets London. It's really um, extraordinary. So it's, it's really, it's a, kind of a self-contained area, it sounds yeah, like. Totally. And it has its own thriving arts and culture community, of which Theater Squared is a part and uh, Arkansas Shakespeare Theater is a part. What's the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater? They are the only professional Shakespeare company in the state of Arkansas. They are housed in Conway, which is roughly two, little over two hours um, away. It's pretty close to Little Rock. Um, it's about 25 minutes away from Little Rock. And so the Arkansas Shakespeare Theater has been around since 2007. They used to produce three shows a year in rep, and then we do an educational tour. Of course, COVID happened. That just, as we all know, Put the kibosh on a lot of things and so last year they had they sort of reimagined what the festival was and they reached out to us here at the university of arkansas and they wanted to partner so last year we started a partnership with them and we did much ado in both conway and up in fayetteville and then we've partnered again with them this year so you have your students who are graduate students and presumably also undergraduate students Correct. working alongside professional actors, directors, and choreographers. So there's a, there's a whole mix and potentially a pipeline into, into uh, career opportunities for your students. Oh, totally. And in fact, that's happened already. I know um, one of our scenic designers uh, that designed Much Ado last year got a, a job with the director following that show. So, I mean, 
yeah, it's as you all know, it's all about relationships and and uh, it really it's sort of a little pipeline for them into the professional world. You said you had 15 days to rehearse Prospero. 15 days. Yeah. And and did you have lead time before that? I mean, obviously, you did some work before that on your own. I did. I, I, I had I knew I was playing the role a few months before, so I was able to to work on it. And the director, who also works at the University of Arkansas, um, her and I went through the script and we cut the script together. So I, I spent a lot of time with it. I, I was living with that, that play in that role for a few months before we started rehearsal. And that's the only way I could have done that. Otherwise, there is no way to go in cold 15 days playing Prospero. Well, you know the plot certainly better than I do. You're much more f- familiar with it. But to this, so this may be an oversimplification, but Prospero and Miranda are essentially in self-imposed exile on this magical island could could be paradise depending on how you want to interpret it but but they've retreated from the world and then prospero has made this decision to bring the world to their refuge a momentous decision which is fraught with with danger so he's um he's made he's made the decision basically to uh, end this uh, her her innocence in 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 a way would that be correct Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, to, to spend uh, 12 years on a deserted island um, with, uh, with your daughter and raising her and then having the idea, oh, I think it's time for her to get married. We need to go back to civilization <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is quite the thing. Um, I, I would say also that I think the other thing I've learned throughout this play is that it's a, a sense of regaining one's humanity is really a, a, a big theme in this play. So I think Prospero has lost that. And the thing that's been interesting in the journey of it is that, and I was just talking to um, Bob Ford about this uh, yesterday, is that the play was a struggle for me at first because it's there's not one clear objective and need in the play. It's not just, I want to get back to Millen. I want my daughter to get married. Um, I want to enact revenge on the people that hurt me. It's all of those things. And at each point in the play, one of them sort of bubbles up to the surface and becomes the biggest thing in that scene or in that moment. And then we move to another scene and the other part of it bubbles up. Um, so Miranda getting married and, and re, what's the word I want to use? Um, reacquainting her with uh, society is a huge part of it. And yet there's so many other parts to it too, um, which I think makes the play so rich and so interesting because it's not just one specific need that we're moving towards. There are several things happening in the play. It just occurred to me that Prospero spent about as much time on the island as you've spent in Fayetteville. Uh, almost, yeah. 12 years on the island and I'm, I'm coming on year 12 here. You moved to Fayetteville for, for an acting gig and, and you're the head of undergraduate performance at the University of Arkansas, which is also located in Fayetteville, right? Correct. So how did that come to pass? Oh my God, it's so serendipitous. So. I'll rewind back to 2012. Uh, when I was doing the fall of the house, I decided I was going to stay in Fayetteville because I loved it. And I was actually uh, house sitting for Bob Ford and Amy Herzberg. Bob Ford is the artistic director of Theater Squared. Amy Herzberg is the associate artistic director and ran the M, still runs the MFA program at U of A. So I'm, I'm in their house. I'm actually remodeling and painting the executive director's home that he had just moved into. 
And I get a phone call from this woman in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her name is Susan Barrett, and she ran the program. And she said, I, is this Steven? I went, yeah, who are you? <laughs> and she goes, I got your name from a colleague of mine, Michelle Dill. And I went, okay, I have no idea who that is. She was just in Ireland. She was a student of the U of A and her um, mentors, Bob Ford and Amy Herzberg were crossing the street. They had not seen each other in 10 or 15 years and said, started talking and Michelle said, we just lost our acting teacher at Tulsa. We, do you have any ideas of somebody that could, could fill in for that? And Amy said, yeah, he's house sitting for me right now. So I ended up teaching at Tulsa for three years. And then I left Tulsa and I was like, I'm done teaching. I just want to freelance act again. And Amy called me up because she knew I had left Tulsa. And she said, hey, there's a position that's opened up at the U of A. It's teaching one class a semester. And then you're going to sit in and watch me do, um, you'll sit in and sort of help me with my Meisner class. And I went, okay, that's just like a class and a half or something like that. Well, of course, I get sucked in and it blows up into me running the program. <laughs> Amazing. You, but you also continue to act, and so you're juggling two things. It's so interesting, the balance between being a teacher and um, an artist, in that they can inform each other so much. And yet there are times I feel like there's this war inside of me in which they try to fight against each other. Um, the practicality of being a, a teacher and knowing that there is um, a nice financial aspect to that. And yet that also has not allowed me to do certain things because I can't just pack up and leave like I could when I was a freelance artist. You know, you just do the six, eight week gig, finish that gig, move on to the next one. But when you have responsibilities of 100 undergraduate students, I can't just pack up and leave. Um, because there, there are, we don't have enough people. We have a good sized program, but there aren't enough people that can fill in and take over my classes continually. Once in a while, that's fine. But so I'm, I'm grateful to Theater Squared and Trike and Arkansas Shake so I can still um, act professionally and quite a bit, actually. I, I, I think that, that, that each side is resolving itself and, and understanding more that there is a synthesis between the two and it's not Ooh, I identify myself as a teacher and that means I can't be an actor or I'm an actor and that means I can't be a teacher. Like I said, I've really learned that they inform each other the older I've gotten. You know, when I started teaching in 2012, I had never taught before and I was in my early 30s at that point. So, you know, it was, my God, what am I making? $50,000 a year? Holy crap, this is awesome. <laughs> After all the years of, you yeah. know, struggling as an actor. Yeah. But um, but then I was really in, entrenched in that and I could sense the acting part of me started to be, become bitter and upset about that. So I've, I've just realized the older I've gotten is to really find a synthesis between the two. It's just strange, strange career, right? We feel like we're just getting started and then maybe we get a little bit of traction. And then all of a sudden we're playing Prospero and thinking, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> These are the roles for old people. That's Wait a minute. minute. <laughs> What's going on here? And, uh, I met Garrett when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Well, Stephen, the piece that you've chosen to share with us today is from The Tempest and it's act four, scene one. Can you give us a little bit of background? So we are creeping towards the end of The Tempest. And in this scene, this is where um, Prospero is bringing his daughter Miranda and soon to be son-in-law Ferdinand together to get married. And he creates this gorgeous mask, this beautiful pageant in which he 
calls on all of these goddesses to come and sing and bless the marriage between the two. And it's great. I mean, Ferdinand says something like, this is paradise. I never want to leave. So it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And right when he says that, Prospero remembers, oh my God, there is this conspiracy against me with Caliban and the two clowns, Stefano and Trinculo. They're coming to kill me. So he, he angrily stops this beautiful pageant and Ferdinand and Miranda are confused. They don't know what's going on. And this is where he launches into the famous, our rebels now are ended speech, um, which basically is the, the fleeting existence of life. Well, would you like to give it a read? Sure, I'd love to. So uh, this is Stephen Charles Marzoff uh, reading Prospero from The Tempest, Act 4, Scene 1. You do look, my son, in a moved sort, as if you were dismayed. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air. Into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Sir, I am vexed. If you be pleased, retire into my cell and there repose. Turn or two, I'll walk to still my beating mind. There's so much to unpack with this speech. It's such a beautiful speech. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is something that you did performatively, which is there's a nice, big, huge pause and change after are melted into air and before into thin air, which for our listeners is line 166. Um, and, it, and the whole speech for you changes there. Um, so tell me about that. Um, the beginning of the speech feels like a reaction to what is happening with Ferdinand and specifically Ferdinand, but also Miranda, um, because a lot of it is be cheerful, sir. I told you that the, this mask was going to end. And then in that sejura there, it feels like there's a discovery for Prospero that and, you know, I'll be honest, when we were working on this, um, this was a little bit of a struggle, this speech, because my impulse was actually to make it all about them. And it became, um, uh, I just don't want to color it with anger because, you know, obviously there was an objective and action and all of that. But there was so much um, uh, anger and bitterness um, not towards them, but towards this whole plot against Prospero and blaming myself and all of this. And what I realized is that I think it's more interesting if there's a discovery for Prospero too in this. And in that sejura, it's also the discovery. It's for them, but it's also for himself too of, oh my God, yeah. Life is, there is a fleeting quality to it. And it, you know, they're melted into air. But the air that we have is like that. It's razor thin. 
and in an instant everything can go. And so that sujura is a, a discovery, um, as much for Prospero as it is, is as it is for um, getting them to understand the fleeting nature of life. It would be hard to talk about this speech without talking about Hamlet. I can't hear this speech without thinking about Hamlet. Um, does the same thing happen to you? Absolutely. And, and a little bit of um, uh, Mackers too. Yeah. At the end of the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Yeah. And it seems so, so and a lot of people like the scholars and all that kind of stuff will point to this is Shakespeare being sort of self-referential about his career and his life. Um, and I'm not so sure that's true because he's written about this stuff before. Um, but it is, it, it is this idea of dreams and moving on to a new, new space. Do you think that's what's happening? I mean, the way you performed it, it seemed like he was having that sort of like, hmm, I'm getting on in years, but as we discussed, he's only 45, right. <laughs> he's not in his seventies. Um, so I mean, why do you think he has, I mean, without to, to be sort of blunt about it, why does, why do you think he has death on the brain because of the impending attack? I think so. I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Um, you know, like I said, what, what kicks this speech off is, and what's so brilliant about this whole scene is that Shakespeare juxtaposes it with that gorgeous mask. Like it's this incredible celebration of new life. And then in that moment, Prospero, what I like to say, um, uh, creates male energy, which is male energy is all about um, slashing something, like destroying something and um, giving the ability to create something new and slashes this beautiful mask with the remembrance of, oh crap, people are coming to kill me. And I think that the, the fleeting nature and the fragility of life is Prospero is reminded of that in this moment. And what I'm doing in performance is the, that last bit I'm actually giving to Miranda to you know look at the daughter and say, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with the sleep. As if it's a bit of a reminder to her that the fragility of life I also think there's something about, you know, it's coming off of a, of a marriage um, and he's, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, he's, he's giving his daughter away or he's watching, he's taking his daughter to another step in life's, you know, many ages. Um, and I know that, you know, having just done a college tour with my daughter and she's about to go off to college, that idea of like giving something that you've cherished and raised for years and years and years, giving it away and how that affects you. Um, you know, I was, and this is strange, but I was watching about salmon uh, the other day and how they swim upstream and then they lay all their eggs and then they die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> um, like, so, so I think that there's, I, I mean, to me, it seems like there's a little bit of that going on as well, where he realizes, oh, like his main task for 15 years has been Miranda yep. and now she's moving on. Uh, I think that, I think that has to have something to do with it too. One billion percent. In fact, as you were talking, I was just thinking of the lead up to the mask, which is the, the whole test of Ferdinand is sort of. Prospero saying, I've, I've been testing you. That's why I've been treating you so poorly. 
through the beginning of this play and enslaved you and basically keeping food and water away from you while you're lifting logs everywhere. Um, and he comes in and says, you know, I've just been testing you. You passed the test. I want to give you to my daughter and how difficult that is. And to see the two of them, you know, talking to each other because he goes, sit and talk with her. She is thine own. And then to just sit there and watch them do that for a minute is um, it's incredibly painful. And I don't have children myself, but um, I can certainly imagine that how hard that would be to see them starting to drift away and you have to let them go. Yeah, well, there you go. And I think that in one, you know, you talk about how uh, the Tempest has all these different perspectives and all these different angles and storylines. Uh, and I think one of them for sure has to be letting go. Yeah. Yep. Um, not just of your daughter, but of your life or the anger that you had towards your brother or that idea of revenge, all of that stuff. It's the, really the magic too. I mean, that whole speech, the, the elves of Hills Brooks, um, which is just a great speech and moves me all the time. The end of it is where he breaks his staff and drowns the book. And I think, the amount, immense amount of pain that is in that. That's not an easy thing. When you have identified yourself as something um, that's hard to let go of and to know that that's the reason that all of this happened in, the, in that crazy act one, scene two, that's so dense. He talks about that, that, you know, I, I locked myself away in secret studies with my magic and gave the government to my brother and look what he did. Um, so I think there is a tremendous amount of blame and acceptance of responsibility in the play and exactly what you said, Jim, how hard it is to let go of all of that when you've identified with that for so long. It's so moving the play. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, oh my God, it's such a good play. Yeah. yeah. Particularly for, uh, for us middle-aged Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would be remiss. Sorry, Garrett, did you have a question? I, yeah, I have a technical nerdy question. This speech has a lot of punctuation in it. And it, there are obviously these these mid-line endings, which are really interesting. Line 174 in the text that we're looking at has one, two, three instances of punctuation, which is a lot within a speech. And one of them is a, is a mid, mid-line stop. There's a big shift there in terms of intention, I assume. Um, but I the after the midline stop there's this short little clause he says sir i am vexed um i have a feeling i know what vexed means but but what what does it mean to you the word vexed stephen vexed is it means um uh angry rageful right okay yeah we're 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 on the same page there so when shakespeare when shakespeare or any writer any playwright dictates to the actor their emotional state that can be really problematic right how do you how do you handle with that i would see that line if i were working on this speech i would see that line and i would cringe because i would i would say to myself well i've, I've got to handle this somehow am i going to try to manufacture this emotion because i feel like i need to give shakespeare's due am i going to decide that as the character is dissembling here what what do you do it's funny because when I when I teach this, <laughs> I actually say it's kind of a gift in a way because he's laying the roadmap out for you. But I totally hear what you're saying. 
you know, it, it's like in the in a contemporary play, if it says something like um, uh, drunkenly does this and you're like, oh, crap, I have to be drunk here. Yep, I'm going to put that on. You immediately go there. How am I going to do that? I, I so get that. Um, I, I think you can you can look at it from the perspective of uh, at least what I, I try to do is um, Shakespeare's giving you guidelines and it's important to understand what all of the, and I, I teach this in the folio, it's understand to know all of the rules and even in specific words that he's giving you. And yet, as long as you are being truthful to the script, I think you need to work it out in the way that's best for you. Um, and to not necessarily just have to manufacture that going, oh crap, here comes, here comes the angry line. I better be angry on this. <laughs> so what's your choice? How do you, how do you handle it? This one specifically. Um, when when we're doing it in performance, that last bit that goes to Miranda, um, I'm I'm pretty emotional there, uh, just like uh, heartbroken, and um, there's a lot of blame. And so the vexed, rather than it being this, you know, I've been angry and pissed, which is what I I tried to do with the speech, which was interesting um, early on. But um, but I think it's more of my mind is vexed right now. It's just there's so much happening in it. Um, is is the way I've interpreted that, because otherwise you're right, Garrett. It's just oh, here we go. Right. I, I need to be angry. So while you were talking, I was going to my good old Schmidt lexicon, uh, and according to Mr. Schmidt, uh, vex is irritated. Uh, Irritated and annoyed. Okay. Um, but what I, but that, you know, that's, that's part of the work we do as actors is we look up all the different possibilities. Um, but what I saw for you when you performed it is that you were sort of shaking something off. And that's what I interpreted your vexed to be yeah. like. I'm like, I'm not, yeah, I got to get, let's go back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this, of this speech. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, to, to answer your question, Garrett, from my perspective, like Shakespeare does tell you those things, those emotional things, but we as human beings experience emotions in so many different ways, like, and the expression of our emotions come out in so many different ways that it's really, to go back to you, Stephen, it becomes a personal choice for the actor from that exploration. So I think that's really, that's a great question though. Um, so the other thing about this speech that obviously scholars love to look at is the meta theatrical quality. <laughs> and do you do you do any of that that referencing in your production or? No, you know the. It's funny because I uh, not only with the speech but the end to the uh, now my charms are all overthrown the epilogue which of course is another is a ode to Shakespeare saying goodbye. Um, that's impossible to play as an actor. It, it just, it's impossible. I, I, we're, I'm aware of it because I'm, I'm a nerd. And so I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is Shakespeare's, you know, his last play that he wrote and uh, by himself. And uh, it's, it's his goodbye to the theater. Like the nerd in me is like, yeah, that's so cool. But the actor in me goes, how the hell do I play that? I can't, I can't play that. I can't play that I'm Prospero and now I'm Shakespeare in this moment. And the epilogue was actually a challenge too. And I talked with the director because I went, we could just do this where we finish the play. And then I like take the costume off and just stand there as Steven and be like, hey, you know, just talking to you here. And I went, that feels so inauthentic to 
to what the journey has just been. And in, in this speech too, I feel like if there's any even hint of it being, oh, we're, we're commenting on, you know, this is that, that Shakespeare speech in which it's him saying goodbye to the Globe Theater instead of, you know, the, the Globe being the world. Right. So to me, the nerd in me goes, yeah, I'm very aware of it. And I think that's really cool. But the actor, there's just, if I did that, it would, it would just ruin the play, I think. Yeah, I think there was a guest once, I think it was Liz Wisen who said, that's not the actor's concern. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that if the audience picks up on, yep. but if they don't, that's not, it's not our concern. Yeah. So I thought that, that, yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you so much. Well, it's been great talking to you, Stephen. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. What a, what a delightful morning this has been and seeing you too. It's been awesome. <laughs> Likewise. Good Thank talking you to you, Stephen. Yeah, it's so good talking to both of you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for The State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.